This is lesson number 26 in our Daniel study, and I've entitled our lesson, The Final Dominion Transition. That's a mouthful, isn't it? We're going to be looking at verses 9 to 14. It was really difficult for me not to just do verse 9. I could have spent a whole lesson just on verse 9, but I pushed myself, and so we're going to try to cover 9 through 14. The word dominion which is in my title, Final Dominion Transition. That word appears seven times in Daniel chapter 7. And whenever a word is repeated that many times within a small space in the scripture, it's telling us something. It's telling us that that is a key word or phrase to understand the passage. And that is very true in this case. Each of the kingdoms of the times of the Gentiles, had God-given dominion. God is the one who gave them their dominion, and he gave it to them for a certain period of time, but then they lost it. Or as in the case of the fourth revived Roman Empire, the fourth uh, kingdom, and that part of it, um, they will lose it. It will lose it. That one will only last for seven years, by the way. Babylon's d- dominion was lost within a less, less than a century, wasn't it? Didn't even hold on to their world power status for a hundred years. They lost their dominion to the joint empire of the Medes and the Persians, whose dominion lasted a little longer, about double the time of Babylon's, but then it was given to the Greeks. And they, in turn, lost their 200-year dominion to Rome, who managed to carry what we could call the dominion baton uh, longer than any previous kingdom. But she was never conquered. What happened to Rome? She sort of just imploded from within, didn't she? Which, unfortunately, is sort of what we see going on in our 200-year-old nation today, isn't it? We're kind of just imploding from within. Um, However, in some type of a geographical or head quarters type of way, Rome is again going to take center stage under the leadership of the most evil dictator that this world has ever seen. He is called by Daniel the what? Little, the little horn. We know him more commonly as the Antichrist. Then even during this some 2,000-year interval of time called the church age, which is not seen in the prophecy regarding the times of the Gentiles because the church was a, a mystery to all the Old Testament prophets. But even in these past 2,000 years, there has been this steady cycle of men and nations attempting to rule the world, so to speak. No one has ever ruled the entire world, but that has been the, um, the plan of many, such as the Qing Dynasty, Q-I-N-G, of China, which followed the Ming Dynasty. And then there was Genghis Khan, and there was uh, the Ottoman Empire of the Turks, and there was the British Empire, and there were men like Napoleon and Mussolini, and Stalin, and Hitler, and Hirohito of Japan, and there was Russia, and communism, and what have we going, got going on today? ISIS, with their Islamic caliphate plan, 
And there's a nutcase in North Korea called Kim Jong-un, right? I mean, it's just, (laughs) you ask yourself, is this all that human history has to look forward to? This seeming endless cycle of temporary and transitory attempts by power-hungry rulers who God calls the basest of men and their followers to have world dominion. Is this all there is ever going to be? You know, all, it started all the way back in Babel, didn't it? Is this it? Well, you know what God's answer is? Thank goodness. His answer is absolutely no. There is going to be an end to this cycle. And we had a glimpse of this good news in the sudden appearance in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, with that smiting stone. There is going to be an end to it. The stone, which was symbolic, a reference to the Messiah, the coming Messiah. All the Jews understood that the stone, with a capital S, referred to the Messiah. When he came from heaven, what did he do? He completely demolished that colossal image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And that Colossus statue, which if you still have your picture, represented the entire godless uh, Babylonian system, you know, the, the world system that has been under the domain of Satan, always opposed to God. And then what happened to that smiting stone? Right, it became a great mountain, and it filled the entire earth with its presence. Now, that event is what ends the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles began when Israel was carried off into captivity in Babylon. When does it end? It ends with the smiting stone, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a prophetic picture of his second coming, not at the rapture, but after the tribulation, his second coming, when the kingdoms of this world will become a kingdom that will never be destroyed and will never lose its dominion because it's the kingdom of God on earth. And all God's people say, <laughs> Well, Daniel's God-given dream of chapter 7 presents, we talked about this last week, it it presents progressive revelation to us about that great day of transition from the kingdoms of men on earth to the kingdom of God on earth. We get more information in this chapter about that transition. Not only will that final kingdom be different in character from any of the kingdoms that have ever been on earth, because of the fact that it's going to be ruled by the one with perfect justice. Won't that be refreshing? (laughs) Perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, and grace is going to be ruled and reigned by the King of Kings. All capital letters, (laughs) as it says in Revelation 19. All capital, King of Kings, the second person of the triune Godhead, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Unlike every kingdom that this world has ever known, the dominion of Christ, who is called the smiting stone in chapter 2, and is called the son of man, we'll see that today in chapter 7, His dominion is not going to just be temporary and transitory. It is going to be permanent and eternal. First of all, it will be 
in the 1,000-year kingdom called the Millennial Kingdom here on Earth. And then global warming big time. This earth is going to be burned up (laughs) and his dominion is going to go into eternity in the new earth, the new heaven and the new Jerusalem where, guess what, you and I are going to live forever. There's going to be a literal kingdom on this earth for a thousand years and then a literal kingdom forever on a brand new earth. I mean, this earth is pretty, isn't it? But I just can't imagine how beautiful that new earth with no sin is going to be. So in this lesson, we're going to continue our discussion of Daniel's dream of the four beasts. We had looked at the introduction of his dream in verses 1 to 3, where he saw the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea of unsaved humanity. And out of that sea of humanity arose these four beasts. That was the introduction. Then we looked at the invasion of those beasts. Who were they? Well, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. But they were represented by an eagle-winged lion, that lopsided bear, (laughs) the four-winged, four-headed leopard, and the dreadful, terrifying beast with the iron teeth. And now, in verses 9 to 14, we're going to discuss what Daniel saw regarding the yet future time of divine intervention on the beasts of that dream. This is their judgment, judgment on the beast. So it was Daniel's introduction, dreadful invasion, divine intervention. Now, whereas verses 1 to 8 of the dream contained Daniel's description of a dramatically prophetic earthly scene. I mean, that was all going on on earth, right? Out of the sea, everything that was happening on earth. Now, he's going to give us a description of an even more dramatic, prophetic scene, but one that takes place in heaven. We're going to look at a heavenly scene. Now, this movement from earth to heaven goes on throughout chapter 7. We'll be looking at things on earth, then we'll take a peek at what's going on in heaven, and then we'll look at earth and back and forth, up and down. This same up and down movement is prevalent throughout the book of Revelation. If you've ever studied Revelation, it's all up and down. You almost feel like you're on a roller coaster. One minute you're on the earth, next minute you're seeing what's going on in heaven, then you're back down to earth with all the, you know, judgments going on. That alternating pattern, you know, that up and down movement, really is what it's it's telling us is that God's will, it demonstrates that God's will is being, is decreed in heaven And then it is fulfilled down on earth. So what he decrees in heaven is fulfilled down on earth. So we're going to have a peek into heaven this morning. Um, So in the dream, back, we're going to be doing a lot of comparison with chapter 2 again and Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue. So I don't know if you have that still with you. You can look at that while I'm talking, the statue compared with the beasts. But uh, the dream that was given to Nebuchadnezzar, who, remember, was the first king of the times of the Gentiles. In that dream, the coming judgment of God on the ungodly world system was viewed from unredeemed man's perspective. Remember, that makes sense because the whole statue was viewed from the humanistic perspective. How does man look at the world superpowers? As something glorious and wonderful to be put up on a pedestal and 
glorified and almost worshipped, right? That's man's perspective of the worldly systems. Well, also the divine judgment, the smiting stone, is seen from the humanistic perspective. The one who has been all along a stone of offense, a stumbling stone to the unsaved world. And if you don't believe that, just go out there and say the name of Jesus in a public place and see what happens. People stumble over Jesus. He was the stone rejected by the builders. Um, He is going to appear suddenly from seemingly out of nowhere. This is from man's perspective. They won't be anticipating his coming. And it's just going to be like, whoa, where did he come from? Why is that? Well, because they're so the unsaved world is so willfully And I say willfully because it's true. They are willfully ignorant of Christ and of Bible prophecy. So when it happens, just like when the rapture happens, they're not they're going to come up with different reasons for why we're missing. We needed to be reprogrammed or something, you know, to think like they do. (laughs) But they're going to be shocked at his return. And he's going to come. This is at the end of the tribulation, seven years of judgment on earth. He's going to come in absolute judgment, just like the stone, to crush the entire godless world system. The rejected stone of the first coming is going to return as the smiting stone at his second coming. Just like the lamb, the first coming is going to be the lion, second coming. Well, in contrast to that, Daniel's chapter 7 Dream presents the end times judgment on the world from God's perspective, from heaven's perspective. Daniel sees in his dream, and I am going to read it in a minute, but he sees the courtroom of heaven being set up. He sees the judge on his throne, and he sees the assessors to the judge on their thrones. He sees the books of justice being opened, and he sees the criminals judged. He also sees the second coming of the Son of Man to take that which is rightfully his. Not only by way of creation, because Christ is our creator, but also that which is rightfully his by way of redemption. He redeemed this world. He is our kinsman redeemer. So he will come to take back that which is rightfully his, And that is dominion over the entire earth. He receives the title deed to the earth in Revelation 4 and 5. If you read those chapters, worthy is the lamb. You know, John is weeping because he says there's no one worthy to take back the earth from the usurper Satan. And then an elder or someone comes up and says, yes, there is one worthy. And that's where we get the song, worthy is the lamb, right? And he took back the title deed. to. And once he starts... Breaking the seven seals of that title deed, that's what brings about the seven seal judgments on earth. And from that seventh seal, what come forth? The seven trumpet judgments. And from the seventh trumpet judgments, what comes forth? The seven vile or bold judgments. And all hell breaks out. But where is all that wrath coming from? From the very beginning, who is the one who breaks the seals? Read it. It tells you specifically it's the lamb who breaks the seals. Christ is the one judging the earth. So anyway, I don't know how I got off on that. 
<laughs> so what Daniel sees in this dream is, first of all, he sees the courtroom of heaven being set up. And then he sees the criminal's sentence. So the courtroom set up, the criminal sentence. Let's look first at the courtroom set up, verses 9 and 10. Daniel says, remember he's speaking now in the first person. I beheld till the thrones were cast down and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels... As burning fire. What? (laughs) Remember, this is apocalyptic literature, so it's all symbolic, and we have to understand what the symbols mean. And to understand what symbols mean in apocalyptic literature, what do you use? You use Bible. You use the Bible, other scripture to understand it. And we'll be doing that. And then it says, verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. Well, there are three specifics of this heavenly courtroom that we want to look at, and I have called them the thrones, the theos, and the thousands. And the reason I went with theos is to keep the th. You know, theos is the Greek word for God. Oh, theos. That's where we get the study of theology. It's the study of God. All right, the thrones. Now, there is, ready? This is going to be not quite as hard as last week's lesson, but almost. (laughs) So put on your thinking caps and sip your coffee, because here we go. The thrones that are set up, there's been a lot of debate about that, well, or cast down. Depends on what version you're looking at. How many of you, your Bible says cast down? Mine does. How many says set up? Okay, so you see there's a debate. Some of you didn't raise your hand. (laughs) What does your Bible say? (laughs) There's a debate about that Aramaic verb. Should it be set up or should it be cast down? And one side of the debate says cast down. And it also says that the thrones that are cast down are those that belong to the previous mentioned kingdoms in verses 4 and 8, 4 to 8, that they belong to the beasts. And those thrones are, you know, pictured as being thrown down before God who sits before them in judgment. And more specifically, some on that side of the debate say that the thrones that are cast down before God's throne belong to the ten kings of the final kingdom, and specifically to the eleventh king, the Antichrist. You following me so far? So that's one side of the debate, that they're earthly thrones cast down before God. The other side of the debate says that the word really should be translated as set up, not cast down, and that the thrones that are set up belong to assessors who sit in judgment with the judge. Now, an assessor is one who sits with the judge and consents with his judgment. He approves of the judge's justice and his sentences. And so it is said that he actually sits in judgment with the judge. Even though the judge is the one making the judgment, the assessors agree fully with, you know, his judgment. Follow me? 
That's what an assessor is in this case. So the question is, are the thrones of the beasts, are they thrones cast down, and are they of the beasts, earthly beasts, uh, representing the earthly kings of the times of the Gentiles, or are they thrones that are set up for assessors who would likely be saints? And when I say saint, I don't mean, mean some holy special person. Saints are all of us who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, um, believed God and the promise of his Messiah throughout all the ages are saints. So are they cast down or set up? Well, as I said, how do we figure out something like this? We look to other scripture to see if we can get some help. And this word is actually used in one other place, and it's in Jeremiah 1.15. You don't have to look at it, but it is translated there as set up. And it's talking about people, Jewish people, who set up their seats at the gate of Jerusalem. Then, if you look in this same chapter, at verses 21 and 22, we read that during the tribulation, especially the last three and a half years of it, the great tribulation, the little horn, the Antichrist, is going to be making war with the saints, Now, that speaks of the tribulation saints, anyone who comes to faith in Christ during the tribulation. It's not speaking of church saints because we will not be in the tribulation. I am a pre-tribulation rapture person, and I have a hundred reasons I could give you for why I am, but we'll get sidetracked if I get into that. Um, But these are tribulation saints, and he's warring against them, and it says he's prevailing against them until the coming of the Ancient of Days, when judgment will be given to the saints of the Most High. You see that in your Bible there? Verse 21 or 22? 22. Huh? No, in Daniel. I'm sorry, in Daniel. The same chapter we're in. I got you confused when I said Jeremiah. All right. Daniel 7, 22. So judgment is going to be given to tribulation saints is what we find there. And then in Revelation 4... We read that there are thrones set up around the fiery throne of God, and those thrones are occupied by 24 elders. Now, again, I don't have time to give you all my reasons for why I believe those 24 elders represent church saints. But I will tell you this, in the seven letters to the seven churches which represent the church, Christ promised the overcomers And they're the ones who believe in him of the church that they would sit with him on his throne in judgment, that they would have white raiment, and that they would have crowns on their heads. And that perfectly matches these 24 elders. They're not angels because angels never have crowns on their head, and they didn't overcome sin and death. All right, then there's a passage. So we have tribulation saints that we know are going to sit with God in judgment. We have church saints who we know are going to sit in judgment with God. And then we have passages, and there's many of them, but here's one. 1 Corinthians 6, 2, it says, Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? That means we'll sit as assessors with the judge, consenting 100% with his judgments. So it appears to be more consistent with the scripture, other scripture, to state that the thrones in this heavenly courtroom scene in Daniel chapter 7 are not representative of earthly thrones cast down. I mean, after all, why would evil thrones of godless kings be anywhere near the holy throne of God? 
but seems more consistent that they are heavenly thrones that are set up for the saints, which probably includes any saint who is at this point in time when this judgment occurs, which is at the end of the tribulation, but before the millennial kingdom, the saints would be any resurrected believers who sit there in judgment with the, with the judge. Now, if, in case you're upset um, that, I, that I said that the King James probably is not correct in saying cast down instead of set up, there's this to consider, all right? It was the custom in the ancient East for rulers and judges to sit on cushions, cushions, okay? Therefore, to sit on a cushion, you have to first cast it down before you can sit on it. So perhaps both verbs, both translations are right, that they had to be cast down so that the court could be set up. (laughs) You get it? I'm a real peacemaker, aren't I? (laughs) Now, let's be clear on the timing of this judgment, all right? Daniel's dream, this is why I wanted to give you this, um, and I did not spell judgment wrong. This came out of a book. (laughs) So whoever did the book spelled judgment wrong. That was pointed out to me yesterday. Judgment does have a D in it. You see the judgment seat of Christ there. (laughs) Judgment. (laughs) So I'm not the only one who makes mistakes. Um, But this is not, the the Daniel 7 dream is not of the judgment that takes place after the millennial kingdom called the great white throne judgment. You can read about that judgment in in, uh, Revelation chapter 20. By the time of the great white throne judgment, I've got news for you. The Antichrist and all the beasts of the times of the Gentiles will be long gone. They'll have been dead for some, well, a thousand years by that time. The judgment of Daniel chapter 7 actually takes place after the second coming of Jesus Christ. So you want to, it's not on here, but you could put a little arrow. It's between the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation, and before the beginning of that oval shape for the millennium. It's between the two. All right? It is also not the same as the judge, or what, what John saw in Revelation 4 and 5. John, I just told you about it. He, he's caught up to have a vision of heaven, and he sees the one who is worthy take the di- title deed from, from the Father, and then begin to open the seals? All right, when does that occur? That occurs at the beginning of the tribulation because when he opens those seals, that's what starts the judgments of the tribulation. But Daniel is seeing a judgment that takes place at the end of the tribulation when the Antichrist and the fourth beast, that dreadful revived Roman Empire, when they are judged... All right, so you have that distinction in your mind? You're following me? Go like this. Come on. Don't. <laughs> All right, so there, there's a difference. I wanted you to know which judgment this is. Let's move on to talk about the Theos, the God, the one who is on the throne before these other set-up thrones. And uh, Daniel calls him the Ancient of Days. Did you know that that title for God only appears three times in all the Bible? And all three times are in Daniel chapter 7. Interesting. We have it here in verse 9. You'll find it again in verse 13. And you'll find it again in verse 22. Now, the literal translation of that title in the Aramaic means one who is advanced in age. 
Some of us would qualify for that. A very aged person. That's what it literally means. Although I don't think any of us would dare take the title that belongs to God, do you? Um, And it's not speaking of his infirmities as an old man. It is talking about the fact of his eternality. He is pretty ancient, right? Because he never had a beginning. So that's about as ancient as you can get. The ancient of days is an expression um, honoring his wisdom, his great wisdom and his eternality. Psalm 55, 19 calls God, he that abideth of old. And Daniel describes him, but not really him. He describes his garment. He says his garment is as white as snow, and he describes his hair as being as pure wool. Both of those picture the purity and the wisdom of the judge, as well as the wisdom and the purity of his judgments. Remember when judges used to put on white wigs? That was to symbolize their wisdom and their righteousness. I think our judges need to put on white wigs, don't you? I bet they got that from the Bible, don't you? I'm sure they did. His decisions are perfectly right and true, like pure white wool, with not even the least spot of imperfection. That's what that symbolizes. And then his judgment is is symbolized by the prominence of fire connected with his throne. His throne was a flame. Actually, you know, whenever a word is in italics, what does that mean? It's not in the original. So literally, it reads in verse 9 that his throne was the fiery flame. That's a throne on fire, isn't it? And his wheels. Did you know God's throne has wheels? His wheels are as burning fire. And then there's this fiery stream issuing and coming forth from before him. And I get into more detail about that in your email notes, which I already sent out this morning. So you could have them when you get home. Fire speaks of punishment. Fire speaks of indignation that devours all that is unholy. Psalm 97 states righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. A fire goeth before him and burneth up his enemies round about. Well, now, if all we had here was Daniel's description of this throne, God's throne burning with fire and wheels ablaze. I mean, all we could really say is, yeah, what I just said, that speaks of judgment and punishment for the ungodly. But we have a little more help. I mean, he doesn't say anything about the wheels, does he? He doesn't explain what the wheels are, but we get help again from other scripture. And if you want to read something really interesting this afternoon, besides my lesson, (laughs) turn to Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10, and you'll really see some apocalyptic literature. But Ezekiel also had a vision of God's throne room, and there he saw a chariot throne. He observed a moving throne that included the chariot of four zoan, which is the word in Greek for living creatures. And they are really strange, these living creature angels. They, they have lots of wings and they have lots of faces. 
They have a face that looks like a man. They have a face that looks like a lion, a face that looks like an ox, and a face that looks like an eagle. All four perfectly match up with the Gospels of Jesus Christ, and that's another story. But the man is how Luke presented Jesus. The lion is how Matthew presented Jesus. The ox is how Mark, the servant of, you know, and the eagle is John. That is another story, but anyhow, they're reflecting Jesus Christ there. And there they have wheels, and they actually have two sets of wheels, and the wheels, there's one wheel inside of the other wheel at right angles. And that makes the throne be able to go anywhere without even turning. It's all very, very strange, but it's symbolic, and it's telling us. um, Oh, and it gets even stranger because on the rims, how would you like that on your tire rims? On the rims of the wheels are eyes. Eyes, full of eyes, looking out. (laughs) All of this speaks of God's omniscience, that he sees everything that's going on. Uh, He has a clear view of everything in all places, in all ages. So his judgments are always right. The wheels and, you know, the chariot being on wheels. um, Actually, the word for wheels is galgal, which speaks of a whirlwind, like when Elijah was cut up in a whirlwind, a chariot, you know. It's just, there's so much meaning in it, but it speaks of his omnipresence, that he is everywhere at every time, you know, his omniscience, all of that is symbolic of God. Now, most commentators agree that this wise, eternal, righteous judge is none other than God the Father. That in verse 9, the Ancient of Days is God the Father. Most commentators say that. But then there are those people who question How, this is where it gets deeper, okay? Some people question how Daniel could see God when no man hath seen God, meaning the Father, at any time, as it tells us in 1 John 4, 12. Moses, speaking to God in Exodus 33, 20, heard these words from God. Thou canst not see my face, for there shall be no man... See me and live, for no man shall see me and live. So they say, how how could the Ancient of Days be God the Father? Daniel would be dead. So it must be a term for God the Son. After all, God the Son is the only member of the Godhead who has ever vested himself in human form, both in his pre-incarnate appearances in the Old Testament. Who was it who appeared before Abraham and ate lunch with him and two angels in a human form? Who was it who wrestled all night with Jacob in a human form? Pre-incarnate Christ. And who actually took upon himself flesh in his incarnation and became the God-man? He's the only one who's ever taken on human form. And then these people also point to John's description in Revelation chapter 1 of the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ. And he describes him, he says, he sees him, and he says he's like one, he's one like unto the Son of Man. And he sees him standing in the midst of seven candlesticks, which represent his church. He's, he's in the midst of his church. And John says that his head and his hairs were white like wool. As white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. Now you compare that description with the description of Daniel of the Ancient of Days, and you say, hmm. 
Now, it is true that the title Ancient of Days would be just as appropriate for God the Son as it is for God the Father. Why? Well, because he is also eternal, the eternal Son of God. He never had a beginning. You know, we're two months from Christmas. But today, isn't today the 25th of October? Two months from today, it will be Christmas Day. And you'll probably get some Christmas cards with this verse on it. Micah 5.2. You all know what it is. It states that Israel's Messiah would come forth from where? The house of bread. Bethlehem. Isn't that appropriate for one who is the bread of life? That he would come forth from Bethlehem. And then it gets very specific. Bethlehem, Africa, because there is more than one Bethlehem in Israel. It means that he would be physically born there. And he was, wasn't he? As speaking of his virgin birth, but he was born as a man, you know, a human. But we, all, we always stop there. But you know what that verse goes on to say? It says that uh, he is one whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. You know what? That, not, that verse not only states that he would be born as a man, but that he, it goes on even beyond saying he, he pre-existed. It is talking about his eternal existence. He is from of old, from everlasting. You get that? That's, that's, I mean, if somebody says that Jesus isn't God, point Micah 5, 2 to them and tell them the whole verse, not just about Bethlehem. And then there's another verse you'll probably see on your Christmas cards. It comes from Isaiah 9, 6, and everybody knows this verse. It talks about how a child is born. That's his humanity, but a son is given. That's God the Father giving his eternal son. And then it says what? His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. But then there's this strange term that kind of has you wondering because it says he's also called the Everlasting Father. We know that that's a messianic passage. The Jews know it's a messianic passage. And yet the one uh, who the son, the child that would be born, the son that would be given is the everlasting father. You know what that literally means? It means father of eternity. The, fa- the fact that Christ, as the glorified son of man, should have a similar glory to the father That's not a contradiction at all. Their glory and their essential nature are exactly the same. Remember when Jesus shocked everybody when he said, I and my father are one in John 10, 30. Their their glory, their essence, they're the same. But their persons are different and their roles are different. And here's another thing to think about. Did you know this, that The one Isaiah saw in chapter 6, the one who was high and lifted up, and his train, you know, the kings had a long train. The train filled up the whole throne room, and Isaiah just fell down and said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. You know that, that one he saw? Do you know who that one he saw was? Jesus Christ. The Son of God. You know how I know that? You say, how do you know that, Catherine? Oh, well, I know it because the scripture tells us. Look at John 12, 41 when you get home. 
John tells us who Isaiah saw, and it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's, here's an interesting footnote about what the Jewish rabbis say. They say that there were two thrones pitched for the Ancient of Days up there in, for, you know, well, two thrones pitched in, in Daniel chapter 7. Besides the thrones for the assessors, there were true, two phones. Phones. There were no phones. I hope there's no phones in heaven. <laughs> but the rabbis say that one throne was for the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and they say the other throne is for the son of David, who is the Messiah, their Messiah. And when I think about that, I just have to scratch my head because that, that is just so amazing based on the fact that they deny the deity of the Messiah. You know, when Jesus kept trying to tell them, I'm the Messiah and I'm also God, they said, no, that can't be. And then he said, well, why was the son of David, you know, calling God? He, he was called Adonai and he was calling God Jehovah. And, you know, he's trying to point that out to them, but they actually say there's two thrones. Now, how can they say that when they deny the Trinity and they deny the deity of the Messiah? Are you following me? It just puzzles me. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. Now, there is a verse in Daniel that definitely involves two persons of the Trinity, and that's verse 13, because it talks about the Son of Man, and he is being presented before the Ancient of Days, in order to be given dominion of his everlasting kingdom. So there's no way you can deny two persons of the Trinity in that verse, right? They're two distinct persons. So in that verse, the Ancient of Days is definitely God the Father. However, then look at verse 22, the third time the Ancient of Days is used in this chapter, and it speaks about the one who comes from heaven at the end of the tribulation, to meet out judgment against the fourth, fourth beast and the Antichrist, the one who ends the times of the Gentiles. And he is called the Ancient of Days. And I could prove to you with many scriptures that the one who comes from heaven at the end of the tribulation, Revelation 19 is one place, is none other than Christ, God the Son. So in verse 22, the Ancient of Days is definitely God the Son. So... Who is the Ancient of Days in verse 9? I'll let you decide. Could be God the Father or God the Son, couldn't it? Could be both. I don't know. Maybe the Jews are right. Maybe there are two thrones. But there are two titles for Christ presented by the Spirit through Daniel in chapter 7. And uh, they reveal that he is both the Ancient of Days. In other words, he's eternal God. And he is the Son of Man. Two titles in this verse proving that he is eternal God and he is also the son of man. He's human. Those two titles affirm the doctrine of the incarnation. Emmanuel, God with us, God in human flesh. He is the God-man, the one from everlasting who was born of a virgin woman in Bethlehem, Ephrata. And this this matches up with the two titles that were given to us of Christ in chapter 2 in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Remember what those two titles for Christ were? You probably don't. Well, you know one of them, the smiting stone, the stone that was cut out without hands. That speaks of his virgin birth. We talked about that. Uh, he's man. 
But the other title was snuck in there. It's in verse 22, 2.22. It says that he was the light who dwells with God. Now, who is the light that dwelled with God from the beginning? Jesus told us in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. So there were two titles in chapter 2 that also speak of the the God-man, the light of the world. That's his eternality. The stone cut out without hands, that's his manhood. Um, So both chapters 2 and 7, we see prophetic revelation that the promised seed of the woman would be both God and man. So I ask you this question. Is the Lord Jesus in the book of Daniel? Is he in the Old Testament book of Daniel? Yes. Do you think he's in every Old Testament book? Yes. I guarantee if we had enough time and we'd have to have 100 years, but if we had time to study every book of the Old Testament, we'd see him over and over and over again in amazing ways that maybe you never even saw before. But he's going to come (laughs) in chapter 9 again. We're going to see him. Now, some of you are saying in your minds, those of you that are alert, well, Catherine, you never answered that question about how could Daniel or John or Ezekiel or Isaiah or any of them have seen God, if that Ancient of Days was God, how could they have seen God and not died? Uh, what about Paul's words of 1 Timothy 6.16, where speaking of the Father, he wrote, no man has seen him nor can see him. So what about that? Well, the answer is that Daniel and the others did not literally see God the Father. If that was God the Father on the throne, they didn't literally see him. Guess what? Daniel was lying in his bed sleeping. His eyes were actually closed. His human eyes were closed. He saw all this in a dream, visions in a dream. What he actually saw was an aged man in whose dignified and impressive form God pictured himself to Daniel. This is what is called an anthropomorphic image. Anthropos, in Greek, is the word for man. That's why we have the study of anthropology, the study of man. It's just God appearing in in human form. God is really not in any form. He is just clothed with light. Uh, God the Father. So what he beheld is one in human form on the throne, but only, did you notice, only the hair and the clothing of his person were described? Nothing about the face or the features, right? Why? Because, well, we don't even have a description of Jesus, do we, in his earthly form? Um, But the face of God would be nothing but like lightning. You couldn't see, even if you could see God in these bodies. Now we will... You know, we'll see Jesus in heaven. Um, but, but you couldn't see his exact likeness because he's just brightness. He's just light. God has no physical form. But he condescends to us to describe things in our terms so that we can relate. You get it? You follow it? Okay. Now, the thousands who minister to the Ancient of Days, um, we know who they are. They're innumerable. But in John's vision trip, up to heaven, he identified them for us. And who are they? Many, many 
angels. Angels are witnesses um, to this whole judgment scene. So we've looked at the court set up. Now let's look at the criminal sentence, verses 11 and 12, the criminal sentence. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, that's the Antichrist, I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. Now, if you're just trying to read that on your own, you scratch your head a little bit, say, what? <laughs> All right. Uh, the, verse, the words in verse 11, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, that suggests that the heavenly judgment scene occurs because of the arrogant, boastful words of the little horn. And if you want to know what those words are, look at, over at verse 25. It says, he shall speak great words against the Most High. He's a blasphemer against the Most High. And over in chapter 11, it says that he magnifies himself above every god, even the God of gods. This is the Antichrist. He's possessed by Satan. And what did Satan, Lucifer, want to do from the very beginning in heaven? Wanted to place himself above God. I will be like God. Well, the one he possesses, the Antichrist, does the same thing. He's going to be a false Christ of the worst kind. Uh, one actually possessed by Satan. You know, there is going to be an unholy trinity. Everything Satan does, he counterfeits the truth. So you're going to have Satan, who is the counterfeit God, pretending like he could be God. Then you have the Antichrist, who's the counterfeit second person of the Trinity, the counterfeit Christ. And you've got the false prophet, who is the counterfeit Holy Spirit. That's your unholy Trinity of the last days. Well, Daniel's vision allowed him to see the end of this blasphemous little horn. He's slain. His body is destroyed with burning fire. Um, and when he's burned, just like when Belshazzar, Belshazzar died, that was the end of Babylon, right? When the Antichrist dies, that's the end of the fourth beast, the revived form of the fourth beast. It dies with the, the slaying of its king. Well, what about the other beasts? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, ancient Rome. What about them? Well, his attention focuses on the divine sentence that's given to the rest of the beasts. Now, those empires were, to some extent, continued in their successors. It says, you know, their dominion is taken away, and yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And that's true when you think about it. Rulership may have shifted, dominion shifted, but the people lived on, didn't they? The Babylonian people, those that weren't killed, and there weren't many killed when Medo-Persia came in. Belshazzar was one of the only few that was actually slain. But the Babylonian people merged into the Medo-Persian Empire, didn't they? And uh, uh, the Medo-Persian people merged into the Greek Empire, and the Greek people merged into the Roman Empire. So the lives of the participants of those kingdoms were prolonged in the next kingdom. And this is best seen in the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. That statue remained intact until the smiting stone came and crushed it, right? I mean, when Babylon was over, did that head of gold fall off and crash? No, the whole image stayed intact until the end, even though dominion moved on to each succeeding kingdom. 
John also alluded to this in Revelation 13, 2, where he describes the fourth beast, the revived Roman Empire, you know, the dreadful beast in its ten-horn stage. John describes that beast as a composite beast of all the previous kingdoms. He says it was like a leopard. Who was the leopard? The Greeks. Uh, you know, uh, Alexander. He says, it was like a leopard and his feet were like those of a bear. Medo Persia. And his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. Babylon. The revived Roman Empire of the Antichrist is a composite beast that will comprise all the main features of the preceding empires. Speed. It's going to cover this world in really fast, isn't it? Once the Antichrist, you know, puts down those three kings, he just takes over fast. Speed, like a leopard, like a four-winged leopard. Stomping power, like a bear. And absolute dictatorship, monarchy, like a lion, like Nebuchadnezzar was. And then we also have this amalgamation of the beasts um, presented to us by the existence of all four metals. At the time the stone strikes that image, chapter 2, on its feet. If you look at Daniel 2.35, it states that when that smiting stone comes, it says, then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken in pieces together. Together. Those various elements of the different empires of the times of the Gentiles could not be crushed at the same time if they did not all still exist at the same time. Now, of course, they're not in the same form as when they held their dominion, but each kingdom exists to an extent within the next one. Are you still with me? (laughs) All right. But in contrast, the fourth beast is completely destroyed. In the lake of fire, he doesn't live on, and a totally different kingdom, one that comes from heaven, succeeds that final Gentile empire. The the end of the final beast is cataclysmic, and it is permanent, permanent. And the rulers and the people involved are also likewise destroyed. Now, that part of our outline was called justice at last. And now we move on to look at Jesus at last. So let's look at verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Okay, here's another up and down movement because Daniel's focus goes from the beasts down on earth to the scene up in heaven again. So really, verses 11 and 12 are a parenthesis to explain to us why this heavenly courtroom scene is going on in the first place. So he describes one as a, as a son of man coming in the clouds of heaven, being brought before the Ancient of Days, and the purpose of his presentation is to be given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And that kingdom is going to be worldwide, right? 
the whole world because it includes all people, all uh, nations and languages. And it's also going to be an everlasting kingdom, which will never pass away. It will never be destroyed by others, conquered by others, not even people from some other strange planet in another galaxy. (laughs) And it won't ever implode from within. It's going to endure forever and ever. Now, the term son of man has long been acknowledged by a majority of Jewish rabbis and writers in all ages as a title for Messiah King. They acknowledge that the Son of Man speaks of their Messiah. Interestingly, the Talmud, you know what the Talmud is? It's rabbinic commentary on the Old Testament, and it includes a lot of other things about Jewish customs and different things. It's just a huge book. I guess there's a lot of volumes to it. But the Talmud actually makes an attempt, and this is fascinating, it makes an attempt to connect this verse, Daniel 7.13, with Zechariah 9.9. You know what Zechariah 9.9 is all about? When Jerusalem will see her long-awaited Messiah officially present himself to, to the city of Jerusalem lowly, coming on the colt of a donkey. You know that verse. And that's what he actually did. He fulfilled that verse on Palm Sunday when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and presented himself officially as her Messiah. So the, the Jews, they understand that both of those verses, Daniel 7.13 and Zechariah 9.9, definitely refer to the Messiah. Those are messianic passages, and they acknowledge that. But they have to try to connect them together. So here's what the Talmud says. It says that if Israel is worthy, her Messiah, when he comes, if she's worthy, he will come to her with the clouds of heaven. Daniel 7:13. However, if she is not worthy, he is going to come to her lowly and riding on an ass. Zechariah 9:9. Isn't that interesting? They have some of that right, don't they? <laughs> but then they miss the big thing that there were going to be two comings of their Messiah. But Basically, we could say she was unworthy when he came the first time, and he did come lowly and riding on the colt of an ass, and she was unworthy because she didn't accept him, did she? And when he comes a second time from heaven with the clouds, she will be worthy because she will have gone through the purging fires of the tribulation, and when he appears, she's going to recognize him whom she pierced, and mourn for him and come to faith in him and Israel will be saved. So that is just fascinating. I love to study Jewish perspective on things. All right, so Jesus is the son of God. Do you know that? He is the son of God. He is also the son of David, the Messiah. And he is the king of Israel. But you know what he loved most? What he used to to, um, define himself the most? The son of man. That was his favorite. He could have gone around all the time saying, I'm the king of Israel. I'm the son of God. But the term he used the most was that he was the son of man. He came to earth in his first coming so that he could be the head of restored humanity. 
Uh, he is the seed of the woman who came to crush the head of the serpent, Satan, and to crush Satan's seed. And his seed is most magnified in the Antichrist. That's his climax seed of all seeds, right, of Satan. Um, <clears throat> and that final beastly seed is going to be uh, the seed of Satan, which ascends from the sea. He's a beast out of the sea, right? The sea, all the beasts came out of the uh, ungodly humanity. But the son of man, does he come out of the sea, earth? No, he, come, he, he descends from heaven. You see, the serpent Satan is the representative head of all that is beastly about man down here on earth. And by following him, men have really, we could say, they have become like beasts, haven't they? Therefore, God became man so that men could cease being beasts, just like Nebuchadnezzar. He ceased to be a beast after seven years when he accepted Christ, God. The term son of man is associated with the Lord's second coming because the kingdom that awaits him is that which belongs to him as the savior of the world, the savior of mankind, and the restorer of man's lost inheritance. He's going to take back that which is rightfully his. Going to take it back from that usurper Satan. He is our kinsman redeemer. So the term most precious to his heart was the one that identified him with us, the son of man. Now, remember when he ascended, I'm almost through. Remember when he ascended from the Mount of Olives and his apostles were there and uh, they were gazing and they lost sight of him because he disappeared in the clouds of heaven. And then the two angels said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye there gazing up? This same Jesus is going to return in like manner. What does that mean? He's going to return as he went up. He's going to return bodily in his glorified body. He's going to return with the clouds. And he's going to return to the Mount of Olives. You know, did he come the first time, like the scripture said, from a virgin, Bethlehem Ephrata, the seed of Abraham and David and Judah and all that? Did he come that? Did he fulfill his promise the first time? Is he going to fulfill what he said about his second coming? You can bank on it. Yes, this isn't pie in the sky. You know what we're talking about. He's going to literally come back just like he took off. And that's what we have in Revelation 1-7, where it says, Behold, he cometh with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. And the Lord himself actually referenced Daniel 7.13 every time he spoke of himself as the son of man. And he referenced it. Remember this? When he was standing, the night of his arrest, he's standing before the Sanhedrin council. And that evil Caiaphas, the high priest, is trying to get him to talk. And Jesus is not saying a word. And not want to speak to that awful person. And finally, what does Caiaphas do? He puts him under oath. He says, I adjure you by the living God... Answer this question, art thou the Christ, the Son of God? And you know what Jesus said to him? You got to love it. He says, thou hast said. You got that right, buddy. <laughs> thou hast said. And then he went on, he said, and they were all horrified and shocked. Nevertheless, I say unto you hereafter, ye shall see the Son of Man 
sitting on the right hand of power on that throne that you said is next to the Ancient of Days. You're going to see him sitting on the throne, right hand of power, and coming in the clouds of heaven. Wow. Not only was he admitting that he is the Son of God, but he applied to himself both Psalm 110.1, which refers to the Messiah sitting at the right hand of God the Father, but he applied to himself Daniel 7.13, when he said he would be the Son of Man returning with the clouds. And they knew that that was a reference to the Messiah. So he was saying to them, I am the Son of God. I am also your Messiah, who is the Son of God as well. Your Messiah is deity. And what did Caiaphas do? He rent his holy priest garment, which was against the law. But, you know, then he said, that's it. We've had it. Blasphemy. Crucify him. But you know what Jesus was really doing besides admitting who he was, claiming who he was? He was also predicting his resurrection because he knew and they knew they were about to kill him, crucify him. So he's saying, well, you're going to see me again. That's not the end. He's also predicting his ascension because he says he's going to be sitting at the right hand of God. That's his ascension. And then he is also predicting his second coming. Because you're going to see me, the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And in fact, he's really saying, not only am I the Messiah, but I am the very Son of God, and I'm going to return and be your judge next time. (laughs) And he will be. His kingdom um, is going to be forever. Uh, it, It says that, it's just going to never, never be conquered. He, he will have dominion forever, and it will exist of the same people forever and ever. It won't be Babylonians morphing into Medo-Persians, into Greeks. And You know who's going to be possessed by? The saints forever and ever and ever. And the saints are you and I. We'll live in the millennial kingdom, then we'll go on to live in the new Jerusalem, the new earth, and the millennial kingdom will be full of saints as well because it'll be... All those who accept Christ in their living bodies, and they will live. They won't die. Nobody will die. Except in severe cases of punishment, people will live like they used to for a thousand years. Now, I'm going to close with this. We have to keep in mind that this prophecy of chapter 7, as well as that of chapter 2, was written in the 6th century B.C., not like the critics say in the second century. It was 600 years before Christ. And with the exception, the one exception of Babylon, everything that's given um, was prophetic. I mean, Daniel was living during the time of Babylon, but everything after that was prophetic. There, No one, no one would have ever thought um, that the... the the Medes and the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans would be eventually become superpowers to take over at that point in time because all of them were just little nothings on the world stage. The Greeks were just little fighting city-states. The Romans, nobody ever heard about the Romans, the little city of Rome. Um, And the Medes and the Persians, they were a bunch of quarreling people too. I mean, you know, so think about this. Who would have guessed those succeeding empires, and then who, even if it was a forger in the second century, who would have been able to put them in the proper order? You know, why? if you were guessing to pretend you were, you know, writing prophecy, you don't know who's going to conquer Babylon, but maybe you'd guess that it would be the Assyrians or the Hittites or the uh, termites. You know, I don't know. Guess, <laughs> But he got everyone right. 
You know, and history has proven this, that the Babylonians were conquered by the Medes and the Persians. You know, history has proven everything correct. And then, too, if you're pretending to be a forger writing this book, and you got to think, oh, it, it, people have to believe it's divinely inspired, so how many kingdoms am I going to come up with? I know God's number is three, so I'll have three kingdoms. I'll have Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, the Greeks. That's three because that's his number of the Trinity, okay? Or you might say, well, no, he likes the number five because that's the number of grace. So I'll make five kingdoms. Oh, you know what I would have decided? Seven. seven. There'll be seven kingdoms because that's his perfect number. But no, Daniel said there would be four such world powers, and there have been four such world powers. Um <clears throat> Also, it can be demonstrated that every one of those four world empires, not only did they come in the right sequence, as he said, but they did manifest the very characteristics displayed by the symbolic prophecies in both the statue and the various beasts, right? We've spent a lot of time talking about how gold symbolized Babylon and how uh, foreheads pictured Alexander being replaced by four generals and the four wings, the speed, you know, every one of those symbols perfectly pictured the empires that came into existence. It's just all so perfect down to every single little detail. You know why? Because that is divinely inspired prophecy. It is right how much? One hundred percent of the time God himself said if I have one error I am not God so you can have full confidence ladies in this book this book is the divinely inspired word of God it is don't doubt it Christ is coming again and he's coming soon and I can't wait be nice if it came before the election next week (laughs) I'm so tired of hearing about this election. Thank you for your patience. I know we're over time. Father, thank you, thank you. I think of those signs that I see as I come up to this study, and it excites me so much, those signs that say, thank you, Jesus. Because every time I see one, I say, ah, there's a Christian family. Thank you, Jesus, for them. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you for the hope of heaven. Thank you, thank you, thank you for everything. Thank you for the confidence we can have in your word. Thank you for women who want to study your word to get to know you better. Oh, there's so much to thank you for. You are wonderful. Counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace, and the Father of Eternity. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you.